Hey guys, I'm here with Hugh Newman and Jim Vieira. They are authors and researchers. They're interested in like awesome stuff. Like particularly right now, what we're going to talk about primarily is besides Megalith stuff, which we love, we're going to talk about giants. So they wrote a book together about like the American giants. And then they just wrote one that they just finished about Stonehenge giants. And then you're working on a worldwide giant one eventually. Is that correct? Eventually. Yeah. Yeah. We'll eventually. get to that. Okay. But for now we're on the Stonehenge giants. So like that's, so welcome guys. Hi. Hi. Uh, hello. Uh, nice to have, uh, nice to be on. And, and I appreciate uh, your enthusiasm for the subjects that we're into, like obsessive lunatics. No, it's, it's, it's the, it's like, why watch TV, right? I mean, it's the, it's the greatest uh, mystery and unsolved in the world. It's awesome stuff. Okay. So uh, you don't have to convince me that giants are real. All right. Let's just get into this. Um, What's y'all's methodology for deciding whether an account is a credible, like credible or not when you're deciding like, okay, like we can add this one in our research. Uh, I could go first. Uh, oddly enough, about two days ago, a woman who's a fact checker for USA Today wrote an article um, about a find in the late 1890s in at a, the Sayer Mound in Pennsylvania, right? So W.K. Moorhead, A.B. Skinner, both noted archaeologists, the report in the New York Times says they unearthed over seven-foot skeletons with horns. And that it's making the rounds on the internet for years, and they get this weird picture of, like, a horned skull and saying, you know, connecting it to the story. So she does her best of fact-checking it and, and kind of debunking it. But in fact, I, I sent her a copy of our book, and in our book, we dug into the account. We found that A.B. Skinner, in fact, wrote an editorial to the New York Times where he said the, the skeletons were normal sized and there were deer antlers at the head of the burials. And one of the reporters yelled, oh, they have horns. So it made it and it got mistranslated. And so I, I cued her into that. But um, so we go through, you know, we go before the story, after the story, check the uh the, the editorial pages, the records. We talk to family members or descendants, uh, universities, um, you know, Carnegie, Smithsonian, whatever we can uh, glean about the reports. And we don't just, because there's so much bullshit out there and there's so much, there, there's a lot of valid uh, and strange things in the historical record, but there's also a, a lot of uh, erroneous information that's false. And so we're, we're pretty diligent about diving in and, um, you know, going through every step we can to get to the root of the story. It is one of the it is one of the issues. I mean, one of, I mean, you'll see in the in the latest book on uh, Stonehenge in Britain that Jim went well into the, this Irish giant, for instance. I mean, that's just one example. And for years, you know, we've been presenting and putting this image of you know specific accounts up that we haven't really researched that much but there's enough information to verify them but we went jim went deep into the research found out all these archives and we completely debunked you know really famous accounts and a lot of people are quite surprised they kind of uh, assume we're just kind of believers we just want to believe we're giantologists and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff but actually we're quite kind of surprisingly level-headed we might not appear that way but we are and we kind of like we want we want to you know want to know the truth because such a strange story oh there's Especially, enough there's yeah. enough factual stuff that you don't have to rely on yeah 
I mean, but there's so, I mean, there's just so much data. I mean, in America, it's insane. I mean, I couldn't believe what Jim, Jim and I and Ross Hamilton and Micah Ewers and, and other researchers were coming up with back like six, seven years ago. We just and the, and more since our book came out, there's been like something like I think I've noted about three or four hundred more accounts people have found as well on top of the fifteen hundred that we were aware of, and that's just North America. And so, yeah, in England and Britain, it's not so much. Is that we've got like a few hundred, but you, you compare the size of Britain compared to America, it is actually quite close yeah. if you compare the land masses and things like that. So, it's just it's just a strange subject. I mean, p- people, I still get people still think I'm completely mad for even talking about giants, but when you get so many accounts unfolding as you're researching other things like megaliths, and, you know, the mysteries you know of uh, ancient sites then you, you got you got to kind of take it quite seriously and have a good look at it i think i think people don't realize that that they, they think we've just gone a bit mad or something yeah yeah i'll i'll jump in and say you have so many ancient sites that the legends are associated with giants you know whether it's uh you know Veracocher in peru or stonehenge or non medal and then you have historical accounts from credible sources like the American Geographical Society or um, you know, member of parliament from, from England talking about and witnessing the unearthing of absolutely giant bones. And I understand that, you know, that there's people who are skeptical about it because we haven't DNA tested a 10 and 12 foot skeleton, although we've made a very strong case through the records and the research and documentation of known anthropologists in the U.S. of, of well over seven foot skeletons found and in, in, uh, cataloged by numerous university digs that there is a story here. There's no question about it. And, uh, but it could be a much vaster story and there's no peer review in the alternative world. So you can get away with things you can't in academia uh, unfortunately. So Hugh and I try to take a rigorous approach and look at both sides of these issues. And after all these years, I just fell into this. I was never like the giant guy. I just, by a, a twist of fate and, and uh, a um, tangential investigation, I fell into this, this, this whole strange idea. So, you know, the moral of the story is uh, like virtually every megalithic site on the planet has a giant account and a giant legend associated with it. It's really fascinating. Yeah, okay, so do you think that they, I mean, that, that leads into, like, what to what degree do you think that they had a hand in building the megalithic sites? Because, like, even if we're just talking about, you know, they're, even if they're twice as big as a regular human, okay, that still isn't gonna account for the, just just their size alone isn't gonna do what they did. They had to have advanced technology. I'll, I'll jump in quickly. Like, yeah, I think that's kind of the simplistic notion. Oh, this 20 foot guy built this site. It's not like that. It's that giants are associated with like the tall ones and lost continents and survivors who share the tools and the arts of civilization and an ancient megalithic science based on geometry and geomantics and ley lines and things like that. That's one of the most fascinating aspects that we uncovered in that book. There's, there's all this other information about um, the tall ones, if you will, or the, the it's like a shamanic elite or a druidic elite in the uh, the British Isles. So I would say it's a matter of technology, not some big oaf picking picking up a stone and you know putting it on top of another one. Which there's a, there's a bit there's a bit more to yeah. it than that. Though. There there is an element of 
giants actually, I mean, there are some legends, quite a few of where they talk about, you know, these giants actually lifting the stones or dropping them as they walk across the landscape, like it falls out of his shoe and lands and that creates the site. Or you've got the apron full of the giantess mythos in Britain. That's something me and JJ have looked deeply into where this giantess goddess type figure is she starts her journey with these megaliths, these stones in an apron. And she's got a, a, a direction, a, a final place she's supposed to get to. And on the way, she trips or her apron strings break and they, the stones fall down and create a stone circle and things like this. So although they're not actually, doesn't account for kind of them actually building it, they're connected with the construction of it. So like Jim says, there is this element of like, um, they, they were the designers, they were the kind of surveyors, they were the architects, they were the kind of overseers of these sites, as well as possibly getting the, the biggest guys in to come and help move some of the stones. But I think there is an element of that where if you look at the ratio of height to strength, um, it's quite remarkable how, how much strength increases when you just gradually get taller, even not that much tall, if you've got the same ratios and the same kind of body kind of size expanding in the same same way, um, the strength levels get really, really high. And so, you know, I know that, you know, you can, you, you know, but not still, you're not going to build, build ball bat or something you know, to everything, but some of them, yeah. Oh, sorry, I interrupted yeah. you. I was gonna say you're yeah, still yeah, not gonna build exactly. like something like that, ball that's a different that's a different level altogether, Belbeck. I mean but, oh, sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That that's a, a different story. Okay, so but then it's almost like something happens in the duration of when from from when they from when the legend of them existed till I mean there's accounts that aren't aren't even like the Lovelock Caves or something like, you know, um where you know they existed in the eighteen hundreds kind of thing. Or, I mean, if you want to even go to Afghanistan accounts, but let's just say like the Lovelock cave thing. And then they become kind of like cannibalistic, stupid. Like they go from being extremely smart to being like where they're, they aren't very smart when they're, they're the, the further they go in time. Is well, that there's, Well, there's two different stories. There's the kind of biblical cannibalistic marauding um, giants that Native American legends talk about. And then there is the legends of the tall ones, the Tuatha de Danin or mm -hmm. uh, different beings who show up, the shining ones that are have elongated skulls oftentimes and they teach the arts of civilization. So so it's kind of a, a coexisting reality with these two different um, types of giant that are talked about in uh, mythology. And then you have survivors after a great flood once again. So you have a population that's reduced but in the Bible, there's like 23 mentions of giants, you know, the Rephaim and the Nephilim and Moses sends scouts out and we were grasshoppers in this site. And the giant of Gath has six fingers and toes. And the entire world is littered with rock art with, with hands and feet that are huge with six fingers and six toes. So uh, it's kind of both, you hear both stories. Like Veracocha and the malevolent giants, he destroys in a flood after he creates them. So you have genetic engineers that that's what a lot of these stories are about people looking in the uh the record like is it denise events is it other human cousins that may be part of the story but if you listen to the traditions it's like a genetic intervention that that homo sapiens was supposed to be created by these these gods and the giants as well and so it's a really i i understand it's tough for an academic to swallow but it appears if you listen to legends that there is a genetic connection a genetic engineering that had taken place in the past. 
Well, Hugh, I heard you say something about which, which was a really good point that I really didn't think about, but um, about how the reason that, you know, one of the main questions everybody probably asks you that I've heard is, uh, well, where are the bones? Like, where's the evidence? Where's all this stuff? And you said something to the effect that a lot of these, it's not like they were mummified, like in Egypt or something. A lot of them, whenever they're found, they kind of dissolve too, naturally. Like, they don't actually, they weren't well preserved. Is that um, also a thing? Some of them are said to crumble to dust, you know, as soon as they're exposed to the air. And we, we get that a lot, actually, in America and in Britain. Uh, a large amount of accounts. I mean, there are a few actually you can see in Britain. There are, you know, there's actually there's three or four that um, you can see some of the bones. You can see a two, I think, two seven foot skeletons, one seven foot four, I think, um, on display at a castle. And there's this uh, private museum, and then there's a couple of bones here and there. So they are they are about, but generally, yeah. I mean, it's really hard to find them. I mean, in America, it's completely illegal anyway. You know, you can't even have them have access, and they would, they disappeared the whole lot of them in 1990 because uh, of NAGPRA, the Native American Grace Protect. Repatriation Act. Um, well, the Smithsonian did quite a lot of disappearing before that, but in Britain, you know, we do find that like lots and lots of accounts where they they somehow they it's be, they bury them in a certain way, so it's kind of preserved them. But as soon as the oxygen and the air gets near them, they literally crumble. It doesn't often often just the teeth or skull fragments or some of the harder parts of the bone survive. Um, and this is reported, I mean, and we've got like, you know, with, with the one, there's a couple around near Stonehenge, one of the most famous ones, I just want to mention this because um, this one just vanished, no, no one knows what's happened to it, basically, but there was a 14 foot 10 inch skeleton found just south of Stonehenge, near Salisbury, a place called Ivy Church Priory, and it was witnessed by uh, Sir Thomas Elliot, he was a member of uh, Parliament for Cambridge, he he wrote the dictionary of all books and he, he wrote, you know, he was like a scholar. He was well respected. Uh, also, John Leland, who wrote um, numerous famous books back in the early 1500s. Um, and William Camden, who wrote Britannica, a whole series of Britannica that quite Britannia, it was called back there. They all witnessed this and talked about it. It was talked about for like 200 years. Um, and they, with that, they actually found artifacts as well. They actually found this book with these strange inscriptions all over it on the cover. They found this huge metal tin and lead disc that had these strange inscriptions. No one could understand what they said. I mean, they've all vanished as well. So whether they crumble to dust, we don't know. But when things just seem to disappear, and it's quite unfortunate. But, yeah, you do get accounts where they kind of like just literally as soon as they're exposed, they do crumble to dust. I'll say the Smithsonian's own accounts, their ethnologists uh, found many huge skeletons, including a 36-inch skull found in Alton, Illinois, um, but listed by one of the archaeologists. I think it's the uh, 44th Annual Report, 1873, and T.W. Perrin is the archaeologist. Oh, that's impressive. Yeah, I'm like the rain man. I can't take care of my basic needs, but I can remember all this shit. Um, so it crumbles to dust. You know, I wanted to throw in for, you know, a skeptic uh, might push this all away. And I would say it's in the reports of, of noted archaeologists and anthropologists for like a 200 year period, the jawbone fitting over the face with like hand room to spare. And you can put your fingers through it is found all over the United States, buried in all kinds of reports. Don Dragu, head of the Carnegie anthropology department in the fifties and Webb and snow uh, head of um, anthropology department at the University of Kentucky. They conducted digs. They found over seven foot skeletons, 
but they noted how the Adena people had absolutely massive jaws and bone structure. So you're talking about like seven foot five inch NFL linebackers, like well out of normal range, not a skinny NBA guy, and like a population of these people that seemed to be like a royal class, if you will. And then you go over to the British Isles and Hugh and I found the same thing. So many accounts of the jawbone fitting over the face of the biggest laborer there or the biggest person in town, the same kind of reports in an era of inefficient communication buried obscurely in these journals and archaeological reports. Uh, there's no way it's a hoax. It just it defies logic. So I will listen to the skeptic where like, show me the 10 foot skeleton, I'll believe. But if somebody's just dismissing this, like you guys are like hucksters or snake oilers, they can fuck right off because there's a, just a mountain of evidence uh, for this phenomena. So then do you think that, um, okay, because like I, I love going here, but I mean, like, I, I, if, like, I, do you think there's an intentional cover up then? And if there is, why? I would say, you know, people conflate like, uh, you know, CIA drug running and political assassinations and all the fucked up stuff like uh, shadowy government agencies do with the academic and scientific world. And most epic academics are just going about their business. They're not involved in some, you know, just think of the logistics of it, how improbable it is. And that's like QAnon shit. You know, you get into this this realm of, of fantasy because you don't want to like uh, debate your point. So I'll, I'll say that. But that being said, the Smithsonian was led by a racist, zealous piece of shit named Dr. Herdlichka, who ran it with an iron fist like 50 years. And even though his own scientists listed, you know, several dozen massive skeletons that they found, he's the one who said giants are no more. And he pushed it away as hoaxes and didn't really address what, what his own scientists and other anthropologists found. So you could have this, this kind of like, this is a religious idea. This, this is like a, you know, um, a mythological idea. Let's, let's not really focus on this or just like, basically uh, the obfuscation of evidence. I don't put that past, but well, you can't like share that idea with like all these scientists and anthropologists and archeologists that that's where it goes too far for me. Okay. And do you, do you think it's a cover up, Hugh, or you just kind of like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I kind of agree with Jim. I mean, we, we battled through the Smithsonian files chapter a few years ago, but there's a, a sequence of, just to add to what Jim said, there's like a sequence of agendas that kind of overlapped and became, it became a cover-up because of these agendas, I think. Uh, when you've got, you know, at the time in the 1800s, they were, they were pushing through the whole, especially the Smithsonian, they were pushing through the theory of evolution, you know, Darwin's theory and all this kind of stuff. They, and it, that doesn't fit if you're finding 10-foot powerful skeletons with these giant geometrically, perfectly, astronomically aligned earthworks. You know, it doesn't fit with that timeline of progression and things like this. Plus, you've got the Manifest Destiny Agenda, which is like, you know, taking over the land with a superior race. We're coming in, taking over. We're going to push all these Native Americans, the, the, you know, the people coming in at the time saw them as savages, which is ridiculous. It's racist. It's just abysmal the way they kind of dealt with this. And, you know, and they, they wanted them. They were measuring skulls and things like this to prove they were, that they were smarter than the natives of, you know, the lands of North America and other areas they were going yeah. to. And the problem is they were doing that with the, you know, thinking they were the superior race, but actually they kept finding these skulls 
these amazing artifacts, these giant earthworks, geometrically aligned, um, powerful jaws and double rows of teeth and things like this, these warriors, all these stories and legends that they were hearing as well. And so they, they, that didn't fit with what they wanted, what, what they were pushing for. So you have, so, you know, it, it forced them to kind of cover it up because they wanted their agenda. They wanted the land. They wanted to take over. They wanted to rule this, this part of the world. So you, so you've got that kind of thing you're dealing with as well, where you've got yeah. these kind of basically a whole civilization of morons coming in and trying to take over from these very smart, very elite, yeah. very sophisticated, very spiritual and very quiet people. And um, who, who, you know, didn't really, never really faced anything like this before. So you could see why, you know, there was, you know, the, it appeared like a cover up. It just didn't fit with the theories. That, that's yeah. a good point. Yeah. Yeah, that is a good point. And now I, I feel like you have like Dragon Man or is it called the, the China guy? That was on the Dra Dragon Power Man. Last yeah. year. And you're now it's he's a Denisovan, um, you know, or that's what they're saying. So I guess they'll they'll probably, which is fine. Yeah, I'm sure it's different DNA than ours. But um, uh, so I think it'll it'll end up being maybe it'll be accepted in the realm of okay, and if anything's found in the future, it was a, you know, a cousin to us or something. Well, yeah, I'll say that you know they found hobbits in Indonesia in yeah. 2003. They found Denisovans in um, 2010 massive teeth now extremely large skull that was found in china uh in 2018 it's uh, i will go to the other side and my critique of academia is you know there's there's a there's a paradigm that it's not like because because alternative researchers take it way too far you know sometimes with with the claims and conspiracies but uh lawrence powell james powell just wrote a um uh, paper. He's he's part of the Younger Dryas Impact uh, investigation. It's called Premature Rejection of Science. And he talks about how the skeptics of the Younger Dryas Impact hypothesis, which is now scientifically verified that there was a cataclysm that he hit the uh, Greenland ice sheet like 12,000 years ago. It's the event of the sinking of Plato's of Atlantis, if you will, you know, that this cataclysm and world flood. So Powell says that uh, he mentions the skeptics who took a run at him and other scientists at the time. They said that the Younger Dryas theory was uh, the equivalent to pathological science, that it was just like UFOs and Bigfoot and ideas like that. And you could see the inherent bias in academia that there were these mythological ideas like a great flood or a cataclysm, just like the shit Velikovsky caught in the 60s. And, and you know, eventually, if you could produce the evidence, you turn the tide, but you will meet tons of resistance a premature rejection of hard science and just like the clovis barrier that's another we hugh so many of us have been harping on this for years now that people in the americas much earlier and now finally there's incontrovertible proof with the footprints in new mexico that go back twenty three thousand years right so that opens a new can of worms you know so hugh and i are not anti-science by any means we work with a lot of professionals but uh, you have to understand there's inherent bias. It's, it's just the human condition to be an infantile piece of shit. You know what I mean? It's just the way it is. And most people um, uh, don't self-reflect and don't want to hear the other side of the argument. <clears throat> so what, what Charles, if you had to, you know, place what's going, like, what do you think happened? Do you think like how prevalent are giants? Are they were they like were they the Atlanteans? Were they the pre-Diluvian race that populated the world? Then a, a catastrophe came along, and then you know the smaller 
people were like still around like i don't know i also think that it's interesting that you know, look before the younger dryas you had sloths that were 20 feet and you had like all your uh, all your your flora and your fauna was like, super big so i i always think that either the gravity was different or our atmosphere is that something was different that was allowed to for everything to be bigger so that changed after in my opinion that changed after young Adrias and then so i don't know so like what, what's your story what happened yeah. i'll give a short uh rendition of it but that's a good point the atmospheric conditions may have been uh different there was megaphora megaflora uh, maybe mega humans um i'll give an edgar casey quote he talked he's the, the mystic who talked about giants in atlantis and gave all kinds of readings he said that giants and little people were part of the population of atlantis they were genetic um basically that there was genetic engineers who created the human race that created giants and little people so they're part of the population we have giants and little people to some degree but it's more of a pathological condition at this point there are still people with six fingers and toes and it's it's kind of like a genetic deformity rather than the trait of the giant anymore. So I think you just, you, you have these populations die out. There were Royal classes that interbred bloodlines. They died out. All the early explorers encountered giants from Patagonia to Virginia. Um, so I'll throw it over to Hugh, but you know, it could be just they're part of a general population and they died out over time. Um, Hugh. Yeah, no, yeah, but it's basically it, yeah, but I, I think there were there were elite groups. I think that's one of the fundamental fundamental things that people kind of miss. I mean, you looking start looking into the biblical traditions, they all came from the you know, the watchers or the Anunnaki, depending on which tradition you're looking at. Uh, you know, and so they were elites, they weren't just the general population. The same thing is somehow the elites of ancient island when they that they all came from these sunken lands that no one knows sure where what they were or where they were the same thing in north america it's been proven and we spoke to ross hamilton at length about this who his mentor was vine deloria jr who wrote the brilliant book red earth um red earth white lies and that became one of our source books one of our big inspirations for giants because also in there he spoke to many elders who were very old at the time back in the 60s and 70s and he was picking up information from them and these stories and it's been pr pretty much proven now that many of you know proper oral traditions actually were histories as well they weren't just stories they were actually histories encoded within stories encoded within these very accurate renditions that are passed down word for word, you know, syllable to syllable, precisely uh, to, and memorized over and over again. And he, they found stories that they believe went back to the time of the younger Dryas. So we're talking what, 12, 13,000 years ago, where they called it in some traditions, they called it the dark tent where the whole sky became dark. Uh, all the megafauna started dying out. Uh, and, and they talk about the giant humans dying out at the same time, because before that, you know, there was a time and there's one of the traditions, I forget exactly where it was from, where they talk about these giant beavers that humans had to hunt for food. There was also a time when the giants would herd mammoths like we herd cattle and things like this. And these were part of these traditions. And they, and they, they are, you know, and they went back to before the time of the younger dryas. And there's even a memory of that happening and the devastation that that caused. And they said that everything shrunk, everything got smaller and smaller after that period. So it's in the, it's in the um, oral tradition. It's in the kind of traditional stories that have been passed down. But it's also 
maybe I, I think we in our, in our giants on record we actually talk about this extra amount of uh, carbon dioxide like half a percent more i believe correct me if i'm wrong here jim it's half a percent more of carbon dioxide they think was in the atmosphere before the cataclysm and that alone will trigger all your glands your hyper hypothalamus gland and, and other things and you would actually naturally grow taller because you're taking in more different things and and the same thing with the plants and the megafauna so there is something to be said about that. and um i think there's you know more research needs to be done but it's not you know no one i mean is that interested in it to be honest with you even though there are some academic papers that we spotted and we used in our uh, our first book it's just crazy because that's not really that long ago like ten, like in the scheme of things ten thousand years isn't really that long ago so you would think i mean yeah i mean like if you're how, what is that 30 generations ago if you have three generations 100 years like I, oh wait no 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 sorry that's more than that anyway yeah but still it's not that long ago <laughs> i'm like no, okay, no it's wait. not no it's not that long ago. that's the thing i mean but even in like in britain for instance i mean even north america everywhere i mean it's like we don't have we don't have like memories of a few hundred years ago really it's just not there i mean all the mayans were like you know kind of wiped out all their books burnt so you're losing all that knowledge you've got the library of alexandria going up in flames and things like this and that's only, that's only yeah. a couple of thousand years ago and so you've got like you know these these zealots these these idiots these kind of you know religious types kind of you know just pretty much destroying everything because it doesn't fit with their kind of paradigm at the yeah, time so yeah. it's unfortunate but this is why I, I believe very strongly in like the oral traditions the when things are, uh, are given to memory I mean, the Druids, for instance, had phenomenal memory techniques. And it's the same principle as the Native Americans. It's the same principle as most indigenous cultures. And that is where we've gleaned a lot of our information from, you know. Yeah, when... I, I grew up in New Mexico. Um, I grew up in like next to Isleta Pueblo. Um, like, so I went to elementary school with those kids and stuff. And we'd always have storytellers come to talk to us as a little kid. And they would say that you can't rely on writing because it might not always be there. And they said that, you know, people um, like it's subjected to uh, age and like entropy and to people destroying it. But it, you have to they had to like mem like part of their rite of passage is they had to memorize um, word for word what was told to them. And I always thought that that was a super cool like and storytellers were revered in their tribes, you know, like that was like a, an, an aspiration to get to. So I think that's. Oh, Absolutely. It's the most important information to these people. And there's only a limited amount of information you can transmit. Yeah. Uh, and why would you ever throw in er erroneous information? And, uh, you know, all around the country, all around the United States, um, the elder, we've talked to a lot of legit elders, you and I, and Vine Deloria, the Native American elder, he also chronicled what was said. And it's remarkable. They have the same stories everywhere. And you have uh, not just you know, six fingers and six toes with giant hands and feet etched everywhere in the United States. You have legends of the of the slant-eyed giants and the Judicola rock. And then over the British Isles, you have, uh, what is it, B.F. Spooner uh, in Wales. There is a, a an account where there was a live giant person like in the 1700s. It's in the book and he has six fingers and six toes and on and on and on. And the giants in, in uh, Cornwall, uh, there's a name for him, Tren O or whatever. Uh, so they have six fingers and six toes as well. The moral of the story is, is that these oral traditions and religious documents uh, are just portraying this ubiquitous story that is strange and specific and found everywhere. Isolated Pacific Islands, you know, huge Kiribati, there's like huge 
carved or imprinted footprints with six toes. And the old men in the 40s, the, 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 uh, the shamans told I.G. Turbot, the anthropologist, that it's from the giants, from the race of giants who live there. And, and that's an isolated Pacific Island that had no contact with anyone, um, on and on and on. So th there's a story here, and it's utterly fascinating. It's somewhat frustrating, but uh, I'm just absolutely enthralled with it. I, I just, um, you know, I think we're onto something, and, you know, let science unfold, but it, it's really a fascinating story. Do you guys think they're completely gone? Like, do you think there's, okay, you're going to hate this question, but do you think there's a Bigfoot connection? Like, do you think there's, like, a, I, I don't know, like, yeah. Yeah, I you do. can go. <laughs> yeah. That's one. That's one of my little kind of side fascinations. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated by Bigfoot. My buddy um, David Hatch Childress. He's really into Bigfoot. So I'm always whenever I see him, we we talk about Bigfoot. But even in Britain, that there are traditions. There's a tradition of. Uh, oh, can you remember the name of that? There's a place in Wales where there's a uh, tradition of this giant hairy man, you know, roaming the mountains and scaring people. We've got the big grey man of uh, yeah. Ben McDewey. Uh, up in uh, Scotland as well, who's got this supernatural element to it, but they think he was a kind of Satchquart Bigfoot type creature. And there's various other accounts like that here. I mean, there's in North America, obviously, that's like Bigfoot country, you know, Canada and yeah. things like that. I mean, there's, a, there's actually a, a couple of accounts. Jim hates me for this one. But there's an account we found in um, Ohio. What, what was the place? And I think maybe Dayton, Ohio or somewhere. They, they were digging up these crossroads, yes. putting in these traffic lights or something. And, um, and they found this really weird, really tall, odd skeleton that had kind of really big skull, sort of almost like Neanderthal type skull. He had really long lower arms and like big hands. And it was like, what the hell? It's a really odd looking person. And, and it caused a lot of confusion. And I think we actually put it in our first book. And, and I, then I was convinced, you know, because he was found in this gravel pit. That's where they found it. That, that's a Bigfoot skeleton. And it, but it had been buried. It had been like a burial. You know, it wasn't just thrown in there so i created this theory based on one account that uh, bigfoots are buried underground <laughs> Idiot. But, the, but you do get that i mean some so some of these skeletons that are being reported could be that you know because some some of you know some of the reports the people who've kind of witnessed them over the last few hundred yeah. potentially a thousand years because they go way into native american records as well that that they could be you know they're so humanoid that you, it's difficult to you know when you're describing them a few hundred years ago you know when you're digging them up it could be yeah you, it could be like, it could be bigfoot it could be sasquatch you yeah i the, mean the, you know yeah. sorry uh, go ahead no i was just gonna say you get the solomon island story i think we're gonna do an interview with la marzulli at some point and he, i think he interviewed one of the guys from the kandahar afghanistan story Ooh. um I'm, yeah i'm not gonna claim this and that but i am open to the strangest of possibilities uh there is some like other dimension interfacing with ours or, or multiverse. I don't know what the hell it is, but I'm open to the idea because there's so much uh, bizarre phenomena that occurs consistently throughout history. It's not just our modern civilization that chronicles it. It happens and, you know, I'll go anywhere for a good story and I do ayahuasca ceremonies and I sit with shamans and wisdom keepers and yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm down for, uh, I'm open to any of these ideas. I really think that this universe is quite strange, quite frankly. Yeah, I, um, you know, I, I like go to portals, places kind of thing. Like I, I seek that out. And then I, I had this uh, Tibetan lawman or it wasn't, he's not a shaman. Like, what is he? Not really a monk, but he, 
I love saying Rampa. Maybe he said the word, but I, I don't forgive me. Sorry to John Dennis. <laughs> I can't remember what it is you are. Um, but he was on a couple of my episodes ago and okay. he was talking about the concept of, um, you know, Shambhala and Agartha, like they were really uh, interested in that. And, um, he was saying that it's it there it's a dimension that like it's literally like a spheres that like almost like the flower of life like how they they touch and that certain times when when they go into each other they touch we can access them but we can't always access them and um i you know i i just, i i i started started visualizing that a lot lately and i was like yeah uh i do definitely think there's something to there's there's more to our reality than meets our senses uh, and, and so, yeah, uh, and I know a ton of people who have seen, all oh, not ton, but I know three people, including my brother, who, who have seen Bigfoot. So, like, there's just so many accounts, and it's not like there's an official reporting. Like, the people that have told me stuff, they haven't reported that to anybody. Like, <laughs> imagine how many it really goes. It's crazy. And then yet, we haven't been able to find them, so they're obviously in, quite intelligent or interdimensional or something. There's a, there's a brilliant brilliant author called patrick harper and he's written this book called daemonic reality not demonic daemonic like so you're talking daemons which are these yeah. kind of it's like this whole this thing you're talking about it's like bigfoots are included in that you've got like ufos crop circles fairy realm elementals all this kind of stuff and there's this and the giants are actually part of that and so there's there's this there's this thing where you kind of keep searching and trying to, and almost getting to the point where you've, you know, you discovered Bigfoot or giants or UFOs, and then another another level of complexity will unfold before you, and it's almost like you've got to start again because it just stays one step ahead, just out of sight, you just about grasp the the what you think is the reality of these situations, and it takes one step out out of place. And and I mean, lo lots of these giant stories and giant accounts. I mean, have uh, got links with like strange lights, uh, the fairy realm. I mean, you know, even like the Twatha de Danan in Ireland, they're linked to the fairy realm. They're said to be. They were said to when they eventually got defeated, they actually retreated into the mounds, into like you know new grains and sites like this, and, and started living within them, and would only come out at certain times of year. And things like this so there's there's a, a definitely a connection there between this and i think the ancients had this they didn't have any distraction they didn't have any like internet tv no books even nothing you know they were just looking at the night sky they were observing what they were feeling and seeing within the landscape and the night sky and probably noticing these eminences of energy and balls of light moving across and, and would build their sights there because they felt they felt they felt something some energy happened la -di da and so you can you get this kind of thing where they were actually could actually tap into this other world they could actually kind of get taken by it you know like people say you get taken by the fairies and they didn't have the distraction their minds must have been so clear and so kind of meditative that we just don't have that anymore but we've lost touch with that and i think that's how they were able to kind of choose the locations of these sites because they were kind of you know they were places like liminal places where they were just like sacred areas and like they would sense it and see it and often these balls of light to them they would be like fairies there'd be elementals and stories would be created about that and uh, so there's a whole other thing going on i mean that's just the tip of the iceberg yeah. really can, can i jump in for a sec it reminds me of uh john michelle was you studied with him he's the original megalithomaniac but he talks about a concept in the british isles of enchanting the landscape and we talk about it in our book we have stonehenge and all these sites and avebury and, and glastonbury tour and things are in lines 
in a, uh, by virtue of a geometric sci science that was brought over by the gods and the giants. And it basically attuned the landscape, enchanted the landscape for peace and prosperity uh, as tools of enlightenment to help with uh, consciousness, consciousness raising. And I feel like there's places around the planet, like the Hitchin Post of the Sun, the shaman I did a, a, a ceremony with told me his ancestors built it and you go there and it's a, it's basically, uh, it amplifies your thoughts. So say your prayers or your thoughts there and they will be amplified because of the choice of the stone, the orientation, the, the, uh, the geomantic properties and ley lines and earth energies. And I really feel like, especially in the British Isles that you probably had access to these realms much more in our society is so dense and backwards and, and like tech obsessed. We've lost that, that connection because organized religion doesn't have that connection. It's the fair based disconnection from the one or the divine and these people and the Druids and these ancient ones built structures, just like the King's pyramid and the, and the King's chamber and the great pyramid to open you up to connect with something. So that might be a reason why there's not as much as this phenomena uh, occurring uh, because this, you know, passageway to the other realms is, uh, you know, because Stonehenge is kind of like decommissioned at this point, if you know, it's not the structure it once was. So thanks for letting me ramble there. I like that. Well, uh, and that's, I mean, like you guys have hit on, like, my, I've seen fairies, I've seen a gnome, I've seen a unicorn, I've done ayahuasca, I've done my ego deaths and my mushroom things, I've gone to all these portals, I'm like, totally into this stuff. Like, so I'm like, I'm like, oh my god! I'm like, totally having like an internal geek out right now. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, in one of my ayahuasca journeys, I did see, like, the grid system. Like, I could see, like, the line, like, the, everything I was looking at, like, I could see how everything was gridded together, like, the whole earth, like, how the fabric of our reality was, like, in an interconnected, like, spider web. Um, so that's neither here nor there. But, okay, let's go into, so that's cool. Like, I like <laughs> that you guys are into that stuff. Wicked cool. Look, can, can, can I say, I say one thing to that? Because it's something I've been looking into and it's, it's like um it's just naturally i've been researching this because i'm i'm very interested in this kind of stuff as well and experiment and so forth but there's um one aspect of like if you the further you go back like if you're looking at the building of ancient sites like beckley tepe is the obvious one carahan tepe all this these kind of sites and you go back even to paleolithic times i mean hancock's talk graham hancock's talked about this a lot but there's so much evidence that they were taking and utilizing psychotropic plants everywhere you know to such a level that that's what triggered everything to be constructed in the first place in my in my opinion that's where that's where my research is kind of keeps falling back into the terence mckenna world that's what it's all about i mean you look at like a beckley tepe it's so abstract so strange and then you do a little bit of research and you find out that they were they started brewing beer and wine at Gobekli Tepe, the first places they ever did it was in this area. And if you look at if you're brewing barley, for instance, you are going to get ergo, which is like the if you get a certain type of ergo, certain types can kill you, but other types of what LSD was synthesized from, you know. So you're brewing beer for your whole group, you kind of you kind of you know parties at Gobekli Tepe or get together ceremonies and so forth. A bit of ergo gets into it and it ferments a bit wrong suddenly you're all tripping out super hard and like you can imagine where the ideas and the abstract design may have come from 
we must also remember there's certain types of uh, cattle that were around that area, the whole Garden of Eden, Fertile Crescent area. Their dung is what psilocybin mushrooms grow on. It's a specific type of, of, of bovine or cow. We also have all the grasses that grew in that area contain trace amounts of DMT as well. So you've got, all, you've got these, just these three things as examples of what was going on. And then you have all these traditions of Soma and other such things and the shining ones and, and all this kind of stuff that they were all on this stuff. And I think this is so, so often overlooked, even though it's been covered very carefully by Graham Hancock and Terence McKenna and others. There's something, there's something to be said about that, that the way things have even got to where we are today. But certainly the whole megalithic expansion, I think, was, was, was partly in, inspired by that. Yes, yeah, yes. but we're dealing with like a weird society in that, like, uh, you know, like I, I, I didn't even, I didn't do, I accidentally did 12 grams of mushrooms when I was 35 years old. And I thought I was just gonna, I thought I didn't realize you weren't supposed to eat the whole bag. So I just, um, um, I, that was my first time. Hi. Um, yeah. And so I just thought I was going to see pretty colors kind of thing, but like, um, I mean, my sister was like, you're a druggie. Now, like, I mean, there, we have such an unhealthy relationship with anything that, and it's, and like, I'm just trying to say like, I'm not, I like I I, I don't, I've never done meth, you know. I've never done <laughs> like I'm not into hardcore drugs. I don't do psychedelics all the time, but I just think that it's like this. We have such an unhealthy relationship as a society with anything that isn't material reductionism, and so it's it gets it it's really hard to talk to a lot of people about a lot of this stuff because it's just you know you get attacked, land blast from every which which side. Uh -huh. Absolutely. I'll uh, can I jump in for a second. No, no, it's always, they've always been viewed in a puritanical fashion, but the, the, you know, Hugh's talking about Ergot. Kaikion was used at the Aleutian Mysteries in Greece. I did a whole talk at Megalithomania, or I'm sorry, at the uh, Origins Conference in London about psychedelics in the ancient world. All these churches in England, it's uh, Aminita Muscaria and psilocybin everywhere. Basically, Christianity was a, um, a mushroom cults when it started out when it was more gnostic based or truth based and then it turned into the freak show uh that it is today but you you have so many studies by johns hopkins and others about the efficacy and now there's a bunch of companies that are taking you know ibogaine dmt um ketamine psilocybin and it's going to be a new wave of unbelievable uh mental health drugs so people will shut the fuck up eventually but people who are in a cult like religion are just not interested in opening their mind, which is fine. You know, that, that, that's just the way it is. I feel like ancient mysteries should be an avenue to expand your consciousness, ask questions, figure out what the hell you're doing in time and space. Look at what the ancients were doing. Look at the shamanic cultures and use it as a tool to expand your conscious consciousness. Even the, visiting of sites like the great pyramid and other places it was built to raise your consciousness so you're like whoa you know you go in there and you see like multiple lifetimes and different masters and that you know it's it, it has that effect so the moral of the story is like if i were to give advice to anyone is don't use ancient mysteries to get into the whacked out conspiracy world of of like QAnon and stuff and be in your mother's basement use it as a tool to awaken yourself be a better person, self-reflect on your shortcomings and, and look at what the ancients were up to. That, that's my take. I love that. So 
I, I would be amiss if I didn't go ahead and talk to you guys about like, what, what do you think about the fact that there's like nubs that are found uh, globally, <laughs> or you have scrape marks, scoop marks, beveled blocks, like you have um, just some of these weird features that are found on all these megaliths. Like, do you see the connection like globally or not? I'm, I'm going first here, Jim. Okay. Slow down, calm down. All right. Yeah. One one thing as well with that is that I, I, I made this video. It's on YouTube. Just I put it out a couple of weeks ago. Actually, Stonehenge is an interesting example. People don't realize this. Where you find, actually, I believe there's a nub in Stonehenge. I heard I you talk about that. Yeah, awesome. there's scoop marks on two or three of the stones there, which are clearly they do not look like they've been carved out of hard stone. They look like they've been softened. Yeah. There's also other features there, like little strange sort of spiral shapes on one of the stones. It looks like it's got the big face on it. I can send you some images of these. It's in the video. I'll send you the link. But that, so that, 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 I find that I've always been confused by that. And there's also Stanton Drew, which appears to be, it's like a triple stone circle in Somerset, which is supposedly made of this conglomerate. So it almost looks like gravel, concrete kind of put together. And then we came across this book. Uh, called A Fool's Bolt Soon Shot at Stonehenge by Reverend Robert Gay. It was written in 1966, Somerset-based um, kind of vicar-type dude, but he was also an anarchist, and he tried to burn down the latest, uh, the, the local um, member of uh, Parliament's uh, place. He went to jail for it. I think that's a legendary person. But he wrote this book anyway, and it was like a sarcastic look at Stonehenge because of all this stuff coming out of Stonehenge. He wanted to put the record straight. And in it, he talks about these giants who are said to have built Stonehenge, but they were called the Kangik Giants or the Kangi. Loads of their bones and skulls found all over the West Country. But one of the things he says in it, I'm getting to my point, I promise, was that they had this technology, and this is written in 1666, yeah? They had this technology, but they were able to soften the stone, turn it to powder, and then reform it back into the shapes they wanted. And they would scoop it and change it until it looked exactly how they wanted it. So this was written about this, and it was probably a really ancient tradition that he got caught up with in 1666 and put it out there. And you look at the descriptions of Joseph Davidovitz and like the whole Geopolymer Institute and all this kind of stuff. It's the same principles. Um, and so I find that really intriguing that a tribe of giants would said to have built Stonehenge and Stanton Drew. You can actually see what looks like scoop marks in the sites they're actually kind of written about. So, so, so to me, that's fascinating. But again, obviously, you know, you, you can if you can compare it to Aswan Quarry, you can compare it to Machu Picchu or Sacsayhuaman or Tambo in Peru. There's a few other places that have it in different parts of the world. And this is just the scoop marks I'm talking about here. It, it's really, really odd. So I think, you know, it's one element of this completely missing kind of aspect of ancient technology that we haven't really got to got, got our heads around in this, this era. Yeah, I'll, I'll say, um, well, one thing I like to address is uh, racist claims get thrown around a lot uh, against alternative researchers, oh, yeah. you know, which is which is garbage. It's like the Twatha de Danine are the ones who are proclaimed to have built Newgrange, right? All the sites uh, around the British Isles are attributed to the gods and the giants who showed up, just like in Egypt, in Viracocha, in Peru, the, the Hawaris and the giants in the Viracochas, they specifically told, the Inca did, at Saxiwaman and Cusco, and down at Pumapunku and, and uh, Tio, Tiwanaku, they specifically stated, and it's noted by the uh, chroniclers of the Spanish, 
that the giants and the shining ones and the Vera coaches built it. Our, our ancestors didn't. So it's not like a racist idea to take out, uh, to diminish the accomplishments of these cultures. We're just saying in ancient times who showed up all around the world, these, these where these shining ones, these teachers, that's why the idea of, uh, like a unified thought system is interesting or what I'm a stonemason with engineering experience. And I see the same thing. I'm like, it almost looks like the stone is melted and you have knobs and you have super tight seams and the pyramid, the middle pyramid with the granite casing, I think Mancuri's has the same stones, same fit, same pillowing, same knobs that you find all around Olite Tambo and other sites. So you know, you can't just say, oh, that that's case closed because you need the dates that go back 10,000 years. But now we have dates like that. at go back like Tepe and it will take time because uh, just you, if you told a scientist or anthropologist, oh, oh there, there was like a roaming band of, of, of shining ones and gods around the earth in 12,000 BC, they're going to be like, there's not a lot, a lot of evidence for, for um, diffusionary contacts you know, this, that, that, there'll be a lot of questions in the way, you know, just like I'm not anti-evolution by any means. You can see natural evolution occurring, but a homo sapiens, the side effects of genetic engineering, all the gods create humans out of clay and genetic material, whether it's the Anunnaki or in the Bible or Viracocha or Fuxi in Nuan, China, on and on and on. That's what the tradition state of these people everywhere. So it's, it's pretty specific and I'm open to the idea and to prove the case, uh, I'll, I'll just say uh, the SCAN team has increased their uh, experiments on the Great Pyramid. And they're going to increase the, uh, I'm sorry, there's muon detectors that we use that found a void in the Great Pyramid of Giza a couple of years ago. Now the scientific team is building equipment that's going to be 100 times stronger. And they're going to be able to tell if there's in that void, if there's information and structures in there. So you need evidence that shows artifacts uh, and contemporaneous with like a 10,000 year old date, carbon dating, things like that. So I get a little skepticism, but the ideas that we're all talking about, I think make a lot of sense. <clears throat> cool. All right, you guys. Um, what, okay. So this, la this was, this one's kind of a big one, but like, what do you guys really think is going on here? Like, what do you think's like, <laughs> Like now that you have all, all, all these giant information, you have this kind of, you're kind of putting like all these puzzle pieces together. Like, how do you think that relates to what's going on here? Like what's going on with our reality? What's going on? Is it, what is, is any of this related to our current control system? Like, do you think that we're, we're about to go through another Kali Yuga kind of thing? Like what, what's your sense of what to do about having information and consciousness expansion of this? Yep. You want to go first too, or what? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I can't know, yeah. no, because I, I can always go first. I'm always... Look, look. Yeah, I mean, I think with, I mean, you look at, the, 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 there's a quite a lot of problems, like, to do with, like, these sites. I've got, there's, there's two things that kind of bug me. Some people say, this is the John Michelle thing, John, Jim mentioned it earlier, the whole enchantment of the landscape. It was, all, it was all delightful energy for fertility, to raise consciousness. It was to, like, help with the plant growth. Um, and to maintain height and code information like geometric knowledge and things like this. 
but other people have said and you know that, that actually they were built by like the dark elite to control people and to control things like, like the modern world is is sort of being pushed into with this sort of darkness being forced all over it with all these different things so you know so so you know which way is it where the pyramids actually like to control people were they like you know and, and were they built by slaves you know were they controlling people then it's, so you, you got these two different sides to this whole thing which always fascinates me and you look at these giants i mean this we were, you know we were talking before the show about this book of og you know this this guy was just Crazy. insane he was like you know proper intense you know wanted to kill everyone and eat <laughs> everyone and things like that you know, and chop things up, and, and it's like it's pretty dug. And, and he was one of the giants, apparently, one of the descendants of these great people who came from Mount Hermon, the Watchers, and eventually the Nephilim, and their descendants, the Canaanites, and so forth. And so, yeah, it's really, it's really strange trying to get your head around it because you're dealing with number one a history that's been deleted in many parts of the world. So you you sort of grasping for little bits of information, trying to work things out. And you're not sure if you're right. You know, you just don't know if you're right. But like Jim and I do, we just follow the trail. We just keep our minds open. We keep reading, we keep researching. We see little things pop up um, and little insights occur out of nowhere. Even dreams. I've had dreams with ideas have popped up in dreams and things like this. But where, where if it's leading us anywhere, I don't know. I, I think we're pretty doomed the way the world's going. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I've, got, I've got this sort of a uh, little bit of tiny little spark of hope in my heart. But let's see. I'll, yeah. Um, can it be that all the mythologies, the complex mythologies all around the world in Egypt, the building text, the pyramid text, the Sumerian freak show story of, of sci-fi genetic engineering on and on and on. Can they all be conjured and have no truth? You know, you get into Greek mythology and everything else. Of course not. It's like what uh, a mistake to ignore the written and oral traditions all around the world of indigenous people who actually lived through the events they describe and they describe very strange things and they describe beings who were genetic engineers who came and created humans and hybrids and giants. And I don't have a time machine. Nobody does. But that is what is specifically stated. You have hybrid beings all over the walls of Sumerian temples and Egypt and Mexico. And it's, you know, it's it's just a, a reality that is um, like like the, the Dogon people in Mali, Africa. They talk about the Nomo showing up, these kind of amphibious androgynous gods. And you find the same gods everywhere. Yeah, Veracoach is androgynous. Fushi is androgynous in China. Uh, Oanis, the weird fish guy with the man bag, he's androgynous. Uh, <clears throat> like a double sex being, on and on and on. All the mystics, Edgar Cayce, Rudolf Steiner, Blavatsky, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, they all say Atlantis existed, genetic ex engineering existed. They were like dark elites. Um, there were, you know, the beings of light. Tolkien got all his information from studying that mythology. He talked about the greatest fascination of his life was the idea of Atlantis. You know, you have the dark forces at work. You have the, the daughters and sons of light. And I just say that there was a, a strange story there and it's playing out in a, in a kind of reincarnated fashion in our current society, clearly. But I'm a non-dualist. I study Ramana Maharshi, The Course of Miracles, all the the, the kind of non-dualist masses throughout history. So I would say the universe of time and space is, is like an acid trip. It's a total freak show. Don't get too high. Don't get too low. 
meditate, turn within, like watch Ramana Maharshi videos, for instance, and listen to what a real master says, like Buddha or Jesus or Lao Tzu. And they say that, you know, the peace comes with turning within and that the mind is holographic and don't judge the world and hate the world because you holographically send the message to the self because there's only one global mind or universal mind. So that'd be my, my quick way of saying that things can look dark and, and fucked up, but then you'll have a realm of light. And um, just know that this is like a virtual reality, temporary movie character that you're inhabiting and don't overvalue your, your current incarnation so much. Don't take it so seriously. You know, that's my take. <laughs> I love that. Thank you so much. That's super cool. So, okay, guys, this is so awesome. Thank you so much for your time. Do you have anything? Did it, is there anything that I didn't really touch on that you guys were kind of feeling like talking about real quick? It's, um, well, it's just one thing I think we, we did touch on it, but I want to just mention it because one of the things that is to do with the oral traditions, I just want to mention this because what we found, because I'm, I'm fascinated by, like you say, I've written this book about earth grids and ley lines and earth energies and all this kind of stuff. And lots of these giant myths have them, that information encoded within them you know, a huge amount. Um, and so what, what I found and what we found while we've been researching this book is that we found stories of the giants and how they built the sites, how they laid out the sites, where they placed them in the landscape. They were throwing stones in triangles across the landscape from mountaintops, these giant kings. They were master magicians and all these kind of things. So I think that's one of the elements that kind of we, we wanted to mention because we focus on that in the book. I go, we go into that in like huge detail, actually, because it's, it's completely overlooked. People don't realize that all this this earth mysteries is really cool all these different subjects that form into this geomancy are written about talked about they're part of oral traditions and they've been passed down from generation to generation and this information is really important today because we've lost this we don't have this this way of thinking when, when we're building cities when we're you know building roads and things like that in the far east they do they have what's called feng shui you know and it's a tradition that's still maintained even in architectural schools and things like this whereas here we don't have that and so you're messing up you're you know in in these traditions they were terraforming the land they were shaping the landscape to make it harmonious and whole and to be healthy and vibrant to live in and today we're destroying that so we're living in this where everything all the energies are jutting against each other there's what's called geopathic stress everywhere and so i work with a whole bunch of geomats i know you know a whole team of them i kind of know so we're always trying to kind of work and we, we, we sometimes have to go to places and kind of fix the energies there a little bit you know by little techniques and things like that i think that that's one of the things people should be aware of it's like if you're feeling like crappy it could often be because the energies are messed up because they built things the wrong way and you can find spots in the landscape um find you know little pockets of areas where you can kind of get away from that and i think you know that's something we need to bring back into culture that's that's my little my yeah little i don't i don't like uh, square corners i like round yeah. stuff but you know yes. like there's not really like, a ton of options in our society for not getting away from square corners right now but um do you, real quick which hugh what's your elevator pitch for crop circles because i know you're kind of like got a thing for that and i love i and that could be like a whole thing but like that's a huge geek out like thing that I'm obsessed with. I think crop circles are 
fairies, but go ahead. What? Yeah, yeah well, I mean, I could go on about this. I mean, I've done like a two hour lecture on this, for God's sake, you know, like contact in the desert a couple of years, but there's, right, there's an ancient tradition of crop circles as well. People don't realize this is all, this is all linked to the elemental stuff we talked about earlier. Even the giants are linked with this as well. The giant kind of fairies you get, because often these fairies aren't little sprites, little wings. They're like vicious kind of eight foot tall beasts coming after you and trying to take your soul and things like that. So, but with the crop circles, there, there are reports that go about hundreds of years, possibly thousands. And I, and the, the balls of light that are seen with them often form them and create them. You have this tradition of fairy rings, you have Willow the Wisp, you have sprites, you have all these different names given to them in different parts of the, the British Isles, for instance. And, um, and there's a there's a prehistory of them. I mean, that's what people don't realize. They're not all modern. They're not just the last 20 years or so. They've been around for a very, very long time. And this is linked with this elemental realm very closely, I think. Um, and then you come up to the modern times, and unfortunately, many of them are man-made. There's a, it's almost like and, and the people who make them don't say who they are. And so there's this, some people think they're trying to deceive people, but I think there's another side to it where they're continuing a tradition quietly, secretly, a bit like Banksy, but in the fields, you know, there's like this kind of like creating this art. And I think, you know, whatever you make of modern crop circles, people claim they're hoaxes and not worth looking at. They are because you're being taken out into the land. You're being taken out into parts of the landscape you're never going to ever walk into in your life because it's a farmer's field. It's on private land and things like this. And often these people who make them are really into geomancy. They're really into ley lines and earth energies, and they want to place it on a very powerful spot. If Even if humans are making them, some of them, we don't know who makes them even to the present day. So there's still this mystery about them. Obviously, they're connected with, the whole ufo phenomenon can you tell like can you be like yeah this is real this one's man-made well there's a few there's a few I, a long time ago when i first got into it in the late 90s i started getting into it there's a lot of mysteries then it's got less and less since then because these we know i know who makes them i literally know the people some of them so it's a bit annoying um and so you get tip-offs of where they are so i can get my drone out of there to, to fly over them but i think whatever you know whatever's going on they're they're continuing a tradition even if they're not being made but there are some made in the middle of nowhere miles from anywhere you get them all over north america i mean there's there's they go back like 80 years of reports in north america so you can't claim people are going out hoaxing them there and so i think yeah i think there's there's and they're always linked in britain at least they're always close or aligned to megalithic sites and earthworks and burial mounds and things like this and so one of the ideas is that these stones this is this gets a bit esoteric here that the stones the crystalline nature of the stone circles are actually we, we like given information by the builders to be released at a future date and that information is being picked up through these earth energies and creating these circles so that's one that's one of the ideas if you sort of you know discount the idea of time they were kind of moving you know they didn't sort of see it like that it's very odd i mean it's a very strange that's what got me into all this stuff to be honest with you it was because of the crop circles i discovered all the megaliths and all things like that now i've become a bit more sensible you know talking about giants for instance you know that you know, things things haven't changed that much <laughs> So, uh, what's, so what's, what's, what's y'all's, uh, 2022 looking like, like what, what's your, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're both on uh Shatner's show. William Shatner's the unexplained. Um, we haven't, my brother and I were going to do a third Roanoke special for the history channel. Then the plague hit. 
So I haven't done any, you know, we did a series of shows for history. Hugh was on Search for the Lost Giants. We've both been on Ancient Aliens. And um, Hugh has a site, megalithomania.co.uk. And there's a ton of videos from me and Hugh there. Uh, both our books, Giants on Record and uh, Giants of Stonehenge in Ancient Britain are on, on Amazon. They're, they're both read the reviews, I guess. I don't want to talk our game up, but they get they get uh, high praise from a lot of ancient mysteries people. And uh, yeah, we're, I'm doing some conferences and doing like a Phenomicon and out in Utah in a couple months. And Hugh's doing like with Giorgio and Eric Von Daniken. He's I'll let him say that. But uh, yeah, we're always busy taking tours and the best way to get in touch with us and what we're doing is through the Megalithomania site. And, uh, you know, I would say going out the door, use your investigation of ancient mysteries to like, for me, it's been helpful. Like admit when you're wrong, self-reflect, you know, look at both sides of an argument and use it to like elevate your consciousness and to be a better person, frankly, um, not to be like, if you notice there's so many, and I've been through conspiracies. I'm not, I don't want to be a hypocrite, but they're so bitter and twisted and dark and, and like hopeless, you know what I mean? And I was like that. People would be like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And I'd be, no, you don't understand this is going on right now. And it's just like, that shit's going to go on anyways. And nobody's going to listen to what the hell you're saying. It's like turn within or, or act kindly to people. There are ways to mitigate the freak show of the world that have to do with like kindness and, and self-reflection. And that's what I would use the platform of ancient mysteries for not just to be a freak, you know, uh, in your mother's basement once again. So that's my take. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah, I'll uh, add to that. Yeah, what am I up to? Yeah, similar to Jim, we're, you know, we're working on doing more writing on various subjects. But um, I've got the, the big megalithomania conference I run every year in May, uh, 7th and 8th of May. We're doing it in Glastonbury, England. We're going to be live streaming it actually this year. Um, that's coming up in a month, you know, or so from now to you know when this is coming out exactly and then uh, i think um i'm running a few tours you know i'll be doing an england tour with private stonehenge we do orkney in august we do uh we're doing a big beckley Tepe tour with andrew collins in september and we we go, we go to egypt most years jim joins us in egypt he's going to join us on some other tours going over into the next year um uh and what else am i up to yeah there's i should mention the fact that I'm speaking at this big Chariots of the Gods Awakening 2022. It's called in Blackpool, England, on the 24th to the 26th of June. They've asked me to mention this anywhere I can because there's like a bunch of people from Gaia TV and Ancient Aliens, Giorgio and, um, you know, Eric von Danikin and a whole bunch. Andrew Collins is going to be there. That's going to be quite a lot of fun if you want to come to the northern realms of England, that is. And um, I think it's going to be live streamed as well, some of it. And uh, what else am I up to? Yes, yeah, a few, few other, few other bits and bobs, a few other TV spots here and there. Yeah, it's all on megalithomania.co.uk. Great, thank you guys so much. It's been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, we'll have to talk again sometime soon. Oh yeah, yeah, it's been fun. Thanks. Yeah, thanks, thanks. Uh, wonderful interview. Ha, ha, ha.